My co-host Alyssa Frankie couldn't be with us today, so we'll have a special guest joining us for the news and a look at the latest offering from Obverse Books' Black Archive series, an in-depth critique and appreciation of the ninth series finale, Hellbent. Coming right up on This Week in Time Travel, meet first-time author Alyssa Frankie. It me! Welcome, everybody, to This Week in Time Travel. And the co-host, Alyssa Frankie, has been replaced by first-time author Alyssa Frankie. You wrote a book! I wrote a book! I will now lie down and go to sleep for five years. (laughs) So... Obverse Books put out three books covering the last episodes of Series 9, Face the Raven by Saren Groenwegen, Heaven Sent by Kara Dennison, and then Hellbent by you! By me! I wrote a book! I still can't quite believe that I wrote a book. And that is coming out tomorrow as this episode drops on August 1st, although pre-ordering can happen right now. And Alyssa... I just can't let this go. We've got to actually celebrate you releasing this book in the wild and talk a little bit about it. So, listeners, if you'll indulge us, that's going to be the first part of This Week in Time Travel. We're going to talk with Alyssa about her brand new book. I'm always happy to talk about my book. I'm very excited. Why Hellbend? Why write a book about this particular episode? Well, the simplest explanation is that I was asked to write this book about Hellbent. The Black Archive reached out to me and said, hey, we loved your review of Hellbent from the end of Series 9. Would you be interested in writing a whole book on it? And my first thought was, I practically wrote a book. When I wrote that review, I cut out several thousand words when I was writing that review because otherwise it was going to be just absolutely way too long to be a blog post. Yeah, I think I've got 20,000 words of this in me about this episode. It just was a story that meant a lot to me. I think the whole Series 9 finale was so impactful that it hit me very deeply, very personally. And Hellbent for me was the episode that really stuck the landing, that brought all of those themes together and brought it to a conclusion that I absolutely did not expect to see. So for me, it really just made sense that this was going to be the story that I was going to be writing about because it really did mean everything to me. And there was just so much to talk about. Like, it's a very rich story. There are so many different themes going on here. There are so many different aspects of it to pick out and uh, examine under a microscope that the deeper I dug into it, the more I was researching, the more I discovered as I was working on it. How much had you written for the review that you posted at Whovian Feminism and... How much did you finally wind up writing? Because I don't think it was just a matter of just restoring the bits that you cut out. Oh, it definitely wasn't. Um, I did a lot more work for this one. There was three chapters from the final book that followed the pattern that I sort of laid out in my review. 
but basically allowing me to go a lot deeper into them. So there was a chapter on uh, the doctor's more paternalistic tendencies. And that one I went a lot deeper in. I'd actually published an academic paper about second wave feminism and Doctor Who. And that, you know, paternalism, patriarchy was a big component of that. So I had a lot of that already in my head. And that was, you know, fairly easy. There was a section about Clara's departure and about the agency of departing companions. And that one I had a lot of feelings about. That was easy to get done. The final chapter was a lot more difficult because it was a lot more timeline dependent. There was a lot of research that went into the earlier chapters, but uh, my final chapter was about how the regeneration of the general at the end of Hellbent from a white man into a black woman was really part of a much longer campaign to lay the groundwork for a woman to eventually become the doctor. And I was an active participant in the last several years of that. So I sort of knew everything that I needed to include to build in that timeline of here's when we had our first mention of explicitly that Time Lords can regenerate from uh, between genders. This is where we had our first regeneration. This is where we had another hint. This is where another subplot was added in. And here's where we see it on screen. And so I had to sort of recreate that timeline in my head. And then the worst part was finding all of the links to all of those stories from several years ago. But those those three chapters really followed the format I laid out in my blog post. And then I added in uh, two additional chapters on the visual references of the first act of Hellbent and how they draw on classic Western movies. And then another chapter about um, the use of uh, leitmotif in the story, which is basically how Clara's theme becomes something that's not just heard by the audience. It's something that is played, heard, and named by the characters within the show and just sort of how they used that to build this narrative of regaining memory and holding on to memory. So there's quite a bit more writing that went into the book uh, than uh, I had even originally done for my much longer initial review. Let's just recap those chapters real quick. You've got five chapters, and the first one is pretty much about patriarchy. We want people to buy the book, so I'm not suggesting that you begin a dramatic reading of the entire thing. But um, why Audiobook is... book coming now on This Week in Time Travel. No, just kidding. <laughs> so chapter one, essentially, is on patriarchy. Um, yes. And why is that such an important theme in the episode? Well, because really the story is about the Doctor as a villain or an anti-hero. This is about exploring the worst of what the Doctor could be. Um, and it's a very brave episode for doing that because it takes a lot to really bring out the flaws of your character and really call them for what they are, to not make excuses, to not pretend that there's a justification, to just say, hey this is bad, your behavior has been bad, and there's going to be consequences for you and your friends as a result of this. I really wanted to focus on that from the angle of patriarchy because this is really what's happening right now. If you have a doctor who's treating his companion really more like a child than an adult, and 
there's a, so much conversation between the doctor and Clara about autonomy and agency, about whether Clara can and should be making decisions about her own life. And it really, for me, came down to the fact that the doctor is engaging in incredibly paternalistic behavior, and it's pretty much called out exactly for what it is, which was quite exceptional in the episode. So you point out that this isn't the first time the modern series has really taken a stab at sort of critiquing paternalism, and you draw some pretty clear compare and contrasts with Journey's End and The Waters of Mars, both examples of the Tenth Doctor taking things too far. Mm -hmm. And you could argue that the story is about what happens when the Doctor goes too far, but I get the impression from your book that you think that there's something missing from those late tenant episodes that actually shows up in Hellbend. Yeah, I think the big thing is that the consequences from those episodes are really on the doctor's companions and not on the doctor himself. And that's something that's very difficult for me about those stories, particularly as it relates to the end of Donna's story, because Donna is still one of my favorite characters. And I think she has one of the most incredible arcs right up to those last few minutes in which her agency is completely taken from her and she's has her memories forcibly removed and we're supposed to act as if this is some great tragedy for the doctor rather than something horrible that he inflicted on another person. The companion in Journey's End and Adelaide in The Waters of Mars, they just sort of recede in the background. They're collateral damage. They are. They are. That doesn't happen in Hellbent. You have the woman who would be collateral damage having the opportunity to speak up and be heard by the doctor to get through to him and make him understand this isn't okay. This is not at all okay. And it's a very rare and exceptional moment because of that. Chapter two, uh, as you said, is taking a look at the Western themes in Hellbent. Stephen Moffat did a lot of work. Rachel Talalay did a lot of work. Peter Capaldi did a lot of, you know, Clint Eastwood style. I don't know if you'd call it swagger or just smoldering or whatever, but especially at the early going, Hellbent is totally a Western, right? Oh, it's absolutely just beat for beat a Western. Um, and I had a lot of fun with this chapter because uh, it gave me the opportunity to go back and watch a lot of classic Westerns that I just hadn't really had the time or had someone to introduce them to me before. So that was a lot of fun to be able to watch the Westerns that uh, inspired Hellbent. Because I, I've obviously I've seen other westerns before, um, and I grew up in an area of Los Angeles where many of these westerns were filmed. So I was I was familiar broadly with a lot of the tropes and the visual references that were being used. But I got to dive deep into the specific stories, um, which was fascinating. Um, and Rachel Talalay was kind enough to share with me some of the visual references that she used. And I mean, that was an, just 
an absolute delight to watch the episode again and to compare the visual references and see where she was pulling in those visuals for the story. But it absolutely is. It's a showdown in a rural, almost lawless area. Um, you have somebody with nothing left to lose facing down against authority. You almost have a shootout and because it's Doctor Who, it has to upend your expectations. And so the shootout doesn't happen in high noon when they're all facing down against each other. The shootout happens in a very intimate one-on-one -on -one moment later on in the story. But the evolution of the Doctor's character absolutely follows the evolution of a gunslinger's character. Uh, and he really is a gunslinger in this story. That's 100% what he is. And it's fascinating to see them do that because previous Western stories in Doctor Who have really gone to great lengths to say the Doctor would never, ever hold or fire a gun. And this story is just 100% leaning into the fact of this Doctor is off the rails and this is, you know, what he is when he is acting upon his worst impulses. And it really serves as a defining moment to make everyone realize he's not the hero of this story. He's the anti-hero or the villain. Chapter three, provocatively titled Clara Who. I've had friendly arguments with some Doctor Who fans who were not happy with the character of Clara Oswald because they thought that she was too doctory. She was taking too much of the focus away from the big damn hero, either the 11th Doctor or the 12th Doctor. But this chapter is all about Clara as a character with agency and as a doctor figure in her own right. You don't mind her being Clara who one damn bit, do you? I do not, no, especially because I think it was done very well because the way that they do Clara Who is basically to create this new doctorish figure and use it to illuminate the faults in our own doctor, the one that we already identify with. And it's her realizing that she can't really be a doctor on the doctor's terms, that she is a different individual and she cannot do the same things, but maybe she can be different and better as a result of the things that she has learned. And I think one of the really astounding things about it is she has that realization, that moment in Face the Raven where she does the doctor's thing and it kills her, where she realizes I'm not playing on the same playing field that the doctor is. But instead of letting that be the final moment of her story, she gets to come back. She gets to reinvent herself again. And the narrative actually bends over backwards to find a loophole for her to survive. And it's not something that bothers me because it's something that the story does every single damn time for the doctor. Like if the doctor wasn't our protagonist, he would have been killed several seasons ago with all the ridiculous things that the he does. The doctor gets to regenerate for crying out loud. Exactly. Like this is a character, you know, built around finding the loophole, finding the plot device, finding the little gap to be able to survive through. And you don't see this for many other characters and you especially don't see it for many of the other women characters. Even River Song, who who is supposed to be a time lord in her own right, almost equivalent to the doctor. Her whole story is around the fact that she is going to die and she's going to die in the doctor's arms. And to have Clara 
have this story that gets to continue, that gets to go on, that she gets to still be herself and still also be somebody like the doctor. It's incredible. Like they, they really give her an origin story equal to the doctor and she gets to go off and be her own damn hero and be incredible at it. So I think it's astounding for both what it does for the doctor's story and for the fact that it gives a female companion a story really on the level of something that only the doctor would get. Now, one of the many great points that you make in this chapter is that when the doctor chides Clara and says that the reason that she can't be as doctory as he is is because she's more breakable. That is meta. That is so meta. It is a commentary. It's not just a, I'm Gallifreyan and you're human. It's, I'm the star of the show and you're the sidekick. Yeah. And this this whole thing basically elevates her on a different level from the plot narrative structure. Like, she isn't just the disposable sidekick. She's a character who can persist. And the kind of incredible thing is how that lives in a fan's memory. The great thing about having, you know, a companion be on the, you know, level of the doctor is that there is an ability for that story to keep going on no matter what, to continue persisting, to find opportunities for it to regenerate and to go on. There's that potential in it now that I find really rather interesting and fun and reassuring. I want to have something you know, for the women to look up to of my story can keep persisting on and on and on. Right. Now, speaking of sort of meta elements, your next chapter is about the music. And one of the things that you get into is the ways that the music that Murray Gold writes to be the background, the color to the show, actually infiltrates the show itself, becomes part of it, becomes the the explicit text of the thing. Yeah. For me, one of the most incredible lines is that maybe memories become song because it's exactly what is happening in that moment that the doctor is making his memories of Clara into a song because that's the way that he has to preserve them. And it's making this background music that is really only meant to be heard by the audience, something that the characters can hear and understand and give a name to. And it's, you know, something that's certainly been done before in other contexts, but I think having that extra layer there to be able to comment on the process of making it heard. Like, it's not just, not to denigrate the first episode of Series 9, but, you know, you have that moment where Peter Capaldi comes out and he's playing the Doctor Who theme tune on the guitar on top of the tank. It's a flipping awesome moment, but narratively, it doesn't really mean anything. Nobody's commenting on like, yeah, that'd be his theme tune, which it clearly is. There's there's an extra layer in this story of commenting on that music becoming a part of the story. And like it's 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 beautiful and poetic and tragic and sad all at the same time. And I really can't say it 
any better than that without giving away a lot of that chapter. <laughs> um, so you're going to have to read the chapter of, I think I've butchered that explanation a little bit, but there's like me with time to sit down and write in that chapter. And it makes a lot more sense. Past me did a better job than present me. <laughs> Final chapter of the book is about setting the stage for Jodie Whittaker, and I find that really interesting because, I mean, this is the series finale for series nine. We had a whole nother series to come with Bill Potts and Nardole and Missy and hijinks and Cybermen and weirdness. But you find a lot of examples within Hellbent of Stephen Moffat doing the work to make Jodie Whittaker possible. Yeah, uh, I think it's one of the really interesting things. And it's part of my complicated feelings about Stephen Moffat, because certainly I think I've been a fairly prominent critic of his over the past few years. And I certainly think that he could have done more sooner to have this happen. But, you know, I was going through and I was laying out the timeline of events and even in moments in which I was incredibly upset with him about some of the things he was saying about the possibility for a woman doctor, the groundwork was still being laid for it. Like, this is something that he has been really building up and setting in motion since he first became showrunner from the very first clip that he ever got to write for Doctor Who as showrunner at the very end of season four when the Doctor is regenerating, actually. He's been putting in hints and clues and building the groundwork in the story, in the canon for the audience that, yes, this could happen and you should expect it to happen soon. It's not all been smooth sailing after Peter Capaldi's casting is when things really sort of go haywire. Um, Stephen Moffat made a what, in my opinion, was a very poor joke during the announcement. And he spent a lot of time going back and forth about whether or not you need to cast for a gender versus casting for the character, which I think, you know, didn't do him many favors and made quite a few people upset. But ultimately, without him, I don't think that we'd have Jodie Whittaker as the doctor right now. I think that even with the time and with the environment, people would still have been a little shy about doing this if that groundwork hadn't been laid, if it would have simply just been, well, okay, now Jodie Whittaker's the doctor, now this can happen. What Stephen Moffat did was get the audience more comfortable with the idea that Time Lords could change gender when they regenerate. He's giving fodder to the movement to have a woman play the doctor and it does help you know in for all its complicated ups and downs one thing that i was able to pull out was there's a small bit of polling in the uk about whether or not people support a woman playing the doctor and it wasn't a long-term poll like it i feel very wary about definitively drawing any conclusions about it but you do see people's opinions shift over time and you do see people slightly swing over, I think, to supporting a woman doctor. And I think that's in part due to Stephen Moffat's work. So it's a long, complicated story, and it starts way before Stephen Moffat became showrunner. Um, so full timeline is in the book. 
I was going to ask you about one of those moments in that chapter involving the doctor shooting the general, but I'll let readers find that in the book because I'm more interested in what you just said about the long path to a female doctor. You know, Hellbent is a crucial pivot point in that. And one of the things that I really find interesting about what you did in this book is that you're sort of using Hellbent as a lens on the wider series, all 55 years of it. You're also using the wider series to understand Hellbent better. This is a book about an episode, but it's also a book about the series. How did you strike that balance? I think for me, the balance mostly came from what I was thinking as I was watching Hellbent, because there were times in which I was thinking about Hellbent and the implications it has for the rest of the series. And there was times that I was watching Hellbent and could not stop thinking about what had come before and what was to come afterwards. You know, all of it is about the story and the places that it leads us. And sometimes Hellbent is making an explicit commentary on previous stories, and sometimes it's laying the groundwork for something that's to come ahead of time. And it is of the whole milieu of Doctor Who. Like, you can't watch it and not think about the broader implications for the show because it is something that is speaking towards the whole character of the Doctor, the whole structure of the show, the whole principle of who lives and who dies and who gets to tell that story as you move forward about each of these individuals, who gets to rewrite the narrative about why is it that companions leave? Why is it that the doctor is so afraid of losing his friends. And it's a very particular and special episode because of how far-reaching its conclusions can be. I am very much glad to see that you have continued the tradition that you had in your chapter titles of dropping Hamilton references in as appropriate in the conversation of Hellbent. You know, I have to have fun, too. You have been... Thinking about and writing about Doctor Who for a very, very long time. You've been doing the blog for years. You've been joining me on this little podcast just about every week talking about Doctor Who. How does the act of writing a book, you know, a physical book, that media, what's different about that? How has it changed you? I mean, it's very, very intense. It's a lot more writing for one project than I've ever done done before. It's something that has a stricter citation requirement, something that needs to Girl, you got bibliographies and footnotes everywhere. Yes, I do, but like this is more bibliographies and footnotes than I've ever done before. You know, when I'm on Tumblr, I can hyperlink to the story that is my source. When it's a book, I have to write out a citation and notes, and it's a lot, okay? (laughs) So it was a lot of intense writing, and it was a lot of difficult scheduling. And, you know, it happened to be 
kind of one of the worst, most difficult years of my life, um, not because of the book, but because of other things that were going on in my life with my family. And this was therapeutic and anxiety inducing all at the same time that I could sit down and really just devote myself to one thing and focus in on one thing. But there was also that overwhelming feeling of, oh my God, what have I signed up for? This is the biggest, most high profile thing that I have signed up for. And it's scary and exciting all at once. And I still kind of can't believe that it's done. Like, I know some people wake up and have like fear of they've missed that exam that they actually took five years ago. I'm gonna wake up and have nightmares about, oh God, did I finish writing that chapter yet? Like, this is my new recurring nightmare. But I would absolutely do it again. It was a fantastic time. I really enjoyed working uh, with the Black Archive and Obverse Books folks. And I'm excited to have it out in the world and to hear what you all think of it. Well, I've got one observation and two questions to close up this uh, observation. Uh, you were kind enough to let me read the galleys. I listened to them while I was driving to visit family. I had my iPhone dictating. iPhones pronounce Gallifrey Gallifrey. That's very sad. <laughs> iPhones also read Isbins. Yes, the the ISBN numbers in your bibliographies. Three trillion five hundred seventy-four billion. Yet it was just goofy. <laughs> so it was interesting listening to your book as a fake audio book, but I don't recommend it for everybody. It's a it's a it's a reading experience. That's the observation. Uh, question number one. It's really weird talking to you as an interview subject. Can we go to a break? And when we come back, can we do like news and be co-hosts again? Yes, Chip. We can be co-hosts again. Thank you. And last question. Will you sign my book? Yes, I will. We'll be right back. This week on The Incomparable Network. There's a lot of angst on the latest episode of Erp Chirp, now covering new episodes of Winona Erp in real time. Lazy Doctor Who is back, and so is evil Patrick Troughton, as Stephen and Erica take up the enemy of the world. And The Incomparable continues its look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe with three Avengers movies, the original, Age of Ultron, and the Avengers Civil War. You heard me. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. Well, Chip, it's good to be back as your co-host, because no matter how much I talk about me writing a book, it's still weird. <laughs> Well, you know what else is weird? It's not weird. It's great. The notion that Doctor Who was the biggest hit of San Diego Comic-Con. They're all falling in love with her just like we are. Yay! They really did. They took San Diego by storm. Just one hint of the kind of splash that uh, our favorite show made at the Comic-Con last week was that Rolling Stone named Jodie Whittaker and Doctor Who the number one best thing they saw at SDCC. They had a list of 25, Doctor Who number one. That's not bad. And I was at Raleigh Supercon this weekend, and I ran into artist Kelly Yates, who is a North Carolina native and who's done all kinds of things for Doctor Who uh, licensing, uh, he, IDW, Titan, whatever. 
and he worked with the BBC on marketing and art stuff. His stuff was all over the place on the BBC uh, merch and marketing materials at San Diego Comic-Con. And he confirmed Doctor Who really was just that big. Speaking of commercial cons, we really need to give a shout out to Showmaster's London Film and Comic Con for the sheer number of doctors that they had at a single convention. Maybe a record? They had Baker, both of them, Davison, McGann, Eccleston, Tennant, Smith, Capaldi, and Twitter is still losing its dang mind at Eccleston meeting Smith and Capaldi. Like, they're just there like, was, oh my there God. There was a hug. There was an actual honest to God hug between Eccleston and Capaldi. They like each other. It's just very, it's just, it's wonderful to there see a, Eccleston a, having fun and doing Doctor Who things. There was a bro hand clasp between Eccleston and Smith. Speaking of which, holy wow, Eccleston's been working out. Look at his arms. (laughs) And if those doctors weren't enough, just to run up the score, I think you could argue that David Bradley, who was also at the London Film and Comic Con, counts as a doctor. So that's, that's either eight with an asterisk or just plain nine doctors at one convention. I guess that's what happens when you have a major commercial con in London. And now the Americans will continue being bitter over here. Ah, we have fun. We have great non-commercial cons. We do. We do. In other fantastic news, there is a new book coming out of which I would like to have million copies. Please and thank you. It's The Woman Who Lived. It's coming September 27th. It's written by Crystal D. and Simon Guerrier. And it is about... The women who have traveled with the doctor, you've probably seen the cover all over Twitter over the past week because it is gorgeous, absolutely stunning, gorgeous art of several of the doctor's female companions and friends. There's going to be with Jodie Whittaker front and center on that cover front dang and center. So they're describing it as a beautifully illustrated collection of inspiring tales of the women of Doctor Who. Uh, The subtitle of the book is actually Amazing Tales for Future Time Lords. So I've got to call that out, too, because you're not just talking about the companions. You're talking about something that we talked about with the Clara section of your book, you know, the characters as agents as having agency and you're also talking about the audience for doctor who this book is about 75 female characters in doctor who including the upcoming doctor herself as well as new companion yasmin amazing tales for future time lords this is a subtitle that says to female fans of doctor who particularly the young ones you can be a time lord too it goes right back to what Jody was saying at the Comic-Con interviews. You're yep. not the companion. You're the doctor. Yep. Yep. So there's going to be art by many, many wonderful people in this book, including several of the friends of the podcast, including Katie Shuttleworth, Yona Bartels. Yona, I hoped I actually pronounced your name correctly this time. And Emma Vaselli. So, yeah, that's going to be a great book. That is the first official 13th Doctor branded new BBC Books title. So we're pretty excited about that. And I think that the messaging, the content of this book and the messaging, I keep coming back to that subtitle, you know, 
Doctor Who is about to become, I think, just so much more inclusive. But let's go back to the pretty artwork, because we were spoiled for beautiful artwork this past week. Doctor Who magazine issue 528 came out, and I am still not recovered from the glorious beauty of that cover. That double-page spread with the photo of Jodie Whittaker on a cliff overlooking a forest. Like, be still, my poor queer heart. I can't handle this anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good issue. And as we're continuing to rely on Doctor Who magazine to be sort of the main conduit for substantive news, since Chibnall's got everything else on pretty much lockdown... I'm paying more attention to DWM in the last couple of months than I have for a while. His production notes on shooting the introduction of Jodie Whittaker last year, they're very funny, very self-deprecating, very insightful. I also really like the retrospective on the IDW Doctor Who comics line. Uh, that is, That was a really interesting, creative, and weird time for Doctor Who comics before the license shifted over to Titan. And this article goes into the weeds a little bit, and that's kind of fascinating. We also do want to give props to Katie Burt for her column in Den of Geek, Why Boys and Men Need Doctor Who Season 11 too, um, which has been a, a recurring argument since forever, since before even Jodie Whittaker was cast about why men and boys need to see a woman as the doctor. And Katie just gave it another beautiful, important perspective. And it's worth reading in its entirety and not reading the comments. Although the comments do illustrate why the article was needed. And why, even though we'd rather be able to move past this conversation, we apparently still need to have it because people still need to get it. So, link to that will be in the show notes. Go read and give props to Katie. And that brings us to the end of another fact-filled, plug-filled edition of This Week in Time Travel. I am so proud of you for getting this book written. I know how hard you worked on it, but... It's the content that's important, not the effort. And it's a damn good book. Thank you. Next time on This Week in Time Travel, we'll probably not be plugging a book, but we you will be able to find us here at thisweekintimetravel.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek. I'm on Twitter at numeral 2 minute time lord, and Alyssa is on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. This podcast is also on Facebook. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our original theme music, to David J. Lore for our original podcast logo and avatar. Please review us on Apple Podcasts and consider becoming a member of the Incomparable Network. And maybe tell all your friends about us. We'll catch you next time on This Week in Time Travel. Bye-bye and buy Alyssa's book. Bye! Bye!